deal here with myself, Iris. I'm covering I cope another presenter on Crania today, Regan, who has kindly made a recording. But first I'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. 3CR sits on the lands of the Kulin Nations. Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present and any Indigenous listeners. I acknowledge any sister girls and brother boys that are listening as well. Um, okay, so today, as I've briefly alluded to, we have a recording of an, of, of an event that was done by Regan from Cronia, and that's what we're firstly going, going to look at, and then we're going to look at some, listen to some music. So, on to the event that Regan covered. So it was the Culling the Rainbow discussion at Darabin Library, I think it was last Tuesday night. And so Culling the Rainbow is a book that explores First Nations, Black, Queer and Trans perspectives. And I highly recommend looking up that book. It's a really important book. Um, And some of the panellists was Dr. Dino Hodge, who's an author and honorary senior fellow with the Centre for Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. Dr. Mark McMillan, a, a Rajri man from Trangi, New South Wales, so-called New South Wales, and first Indigenous Australian to join the University of Melbourne Law School when he was appointed a senior lecturer in 2011. And there's Laniak Garkin-Mills, um, lives a transient life from her hometown of Darwin through to Adelaide and Melbourne. Her queer and, and cultural experiences have been intrinsically connected, helping her strengthen her, her identity and find healing through storytelling. And the other member of the panel discussion is is Kai Clancy. Um, here we go. Uh, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of this land. I would also like to pay respects to the elders past and present of the Wurundjeri Nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people present. So thank you for joining us this evening. Darabin Libraries encourages lifelong learning through a broad range of events catering for our diverse community. Tonight we are proud to support and strengthen our community with a discussion about what it is like to identify as LGBTIQ for First Nations people of Australia. Please join me in welcoming our panel host and editor of Colouring the Rainbow, Dr. Dino Hodge, and book contributors Kai Clancy, Laniuk Garson-Mills, and Dr. Mark McMillan. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. Gosh, what a really great crowd here tonight. It's lovely to see everyone, and thank you for uh, coming out on such a beautiful evening. Um, it's really wonderful to be here, especially as part of a Midsummer event, and uh, we're very grateful to Midsummer Festival for including us in their program. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, and I'd also like to offer my thanks to traditional owners past and present. Um, tonight's discussion draws upon the book Colouring the Rainbow. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, this is it. And we're very lucky tonight to have three panel, uh, three book contributors as our panel speakers. 
Uh, also here tonight with us is Roland from Hares and Hyenas, uh, sitting at the back there very patiently with copies of the book for sale. So um, it's probably a good point just to mention that all author royalties from authors sitting here and everyone in the book um, are being uh, donated to Anthem. And Anthem is Australia's only organisation established by young Indigenous people who have mobilised, as they say, to raise awareness about HIV. So as well as buying a great read, you're also making a wonderful contribution to the health and wellbeing of Indigenous youth. Um, of course, the main attraction here tonight is uh, are our three panel guests. Unfortunately, Bree Nala Curtis from Central Australia has had to withdraw at the last minute uh, due to unforeseen circumstances. Uh, she sends her greetings and her apologies. Uh, and instead, we have Kai Clancy, who's very kindly stepped in at the last minute. Kai, as I've already mentioned, is um, a book contributor. So let me move straight into introducing our panellists. Kai Clancy is from Queensland. He has dual Waka Waka and Woolly Woolly heritage on his father's side. And on his um, mother's side, he's got German and Irish heritage. His online posts have documented his transition as a brother boy. And um, as well, there's been a very notable post that he's done with um, the brother boy elder Dean Gilbert. Laniot Garson-Mules has French and Larrakia blood. And uh, the Larrakia people from the top end of uh, the Northern Territory, from the coastal area, are, are the saltwater people. But Laniuk is actually the Kungarrigan name for the freshwater fairy springs and uh, it protects an important women's business story of female development from a child to a young woman. Dr Mark McMillan is a Wiradjuri man from New South Wales. He's uh, Director of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples and the first Indigenous Australian to join the University of Melbourne Law School where he's been teaching public law and international human rights law for Indigenous peoples. So, um, my name is Dino Hodge, as we know. Uh, my Cypriot name is Constantino Hodgigagu. Uh, I'm a proud Darabin resident, and it's been my privilege to really, uh, to have been invited to work as editor on Colouring the Rainbow. So tonight, uh, I'll be asking one question from each panelist, and then I will open the discussion for uh, questions from you, the audience. So I hope you've got your, your questions ready. Hopefully we'll be able to get through almost all of them, if not all. all. So, Laniuk, um, we might start with you, yes? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in Colouring the Rainbow, Laniuk, uh, you discuss your prior experiences of passing as non-lesbian and non-black. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering if you could outline today uh, the circumstances that enabled you to, or brought you about to, to doing that sort of passing, and talk a bit about how you dealt with those circumstances. Oh, a nice easy it. one. Um, what I what I discuss in the essay that I contributed, um, my essay is called "The Conflicts of Camouflage." Um, if you look at me, you might not um, immediately think Aboriginal, and you might not immediately think lesbian, um, which has had an interesting effect on my life. Being exposed to homophobia and racism, it's been uh, easy, easier at my weaker moments, particularly in my childhood um, and my adolescence, to sort of fly under the radar because if someone is going to express homophobia or racism and I want to avoid that, then I don't have to put my hand up and, and be honest with who I am. Um, being estranged from 
um, my Aboriginal family from a pretty young age and not having a connection to culture or country. Um, it meant that there was a lot of misinformation being fed to me from other people. I had schools, um, teachers, other students expressing really racist views around me. Um, one of the examples I mentioned in, in the essay is that one of my high school uh, math teacher told a, uh, a girl of Indian heritage that he could tell that she wasn't Aboriginal by her dark skin because she wasn't sitting on the side of the road sniffing petrol. So this is like, you know, 2 p.m. on a Wednesday, you know, I'm trying to, I don't know, be educated and participate and I'm having these views just thrown at me, you know, and that doesn't make me want to stand up and be like, oh, well, you know, I'm Aboriginal because I'm thinking, well, he thinks that about me. If I say that, then he thinks I'm going to, what, sit on the side of the road sniffing petrol. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you know, we, we experience homophobia every day, you know, in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. You know, we're told that we're not good enough to get married. We're told that our services aren't good enough to be funded. You know, we're, we're constantly bombarded with homophobia. And again, in my weaker moments, you know, it's been easier for me to appear more feminine and to not use language like, you know, this is my girlfriend, you know, in the workplace. Um, and there kind of came an interesting point when I started attending university that my sexuality and realizing my sexuality was a really empowering moment. Um, because it allowed me to not only make peace with myself, but it also made me realize that other people's views aren't necessarily to be held in gospel. And my family's views or the views of outside people aren't necessarily true. And so coming to the realization on that part of my identity, I was able to look at the other side of my identity, another dynamic side of my identity, which is my heritage, and think, well, if they're wrong about that, maybe they're wrong about that as well. And so I started sending emails and making phone calls, and I tracked down my dad, and I reconnected with my culture, and I was able to look at photos and memories differently and see them from a different, truer perspective for me. Um, and I guess that's what I address, is that, that crucial crossover of development and how the empowerment I get from my sexuality often fuels my cultural experience. And the power I get from my cultural experience often fuels my, my sexual identity. And it's been a really interesting back and forth, and participating in this book was just such a critical thing for me to do. It was so, such an empowering experience to be able to share my story and see validity in my story, and see the complication in my story, and see growth in my story, to be able to map out my life and say, wow, I was there, and now I'm here, and this is where I'm going. Um, and I always, I always express to Dina, my, my, you know, I'm, I'm truly, truly grateful. It has seriously changed my life and seriously changed the way that I see my life. And I see it with, with value now. It's, uh, it's excellent. Storytelling is very powerful. And we're very grateful that you were able to share your story with us. Um, could you just very briefly, in a minute or so, mm -hmm. tell us a bit about what it was like when you did reconnect with your culture and re recollecting language, meeting your Wetchi, your grandmother, for the first time in many years? You know, even, even today, I was rereading the essay, and I still tear up when I read this particular paragraph. Um, because when I, when I saw my Wetchi, when I saw my Nana for the first time, 
you know, I, I thought, oh yeah, she's coming over, I get to see her, this is so exciting. And when I came down the steps and she was getting out of the car, I realized I couldn't speak, you know, and I went over to her and I hugged her and I held her and neither one of us said anything and we just cried and cried. Um, and there was family there <clears throat> and, you know, my, my dad was there and my siblings were there and I, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to have that that relief and that feeling and that reconnection and, you know, there's a lot of trauma in our families when it comes to the stolen generation. There's a lot of, a lot of talk of children coming home and when I was returning home and reconnecting, coincidentally, one of my cousins was doing the same and one of my aunties at one point just sat there and was like, you know, they're all coming home. They're, the kids are coming home. And it's even to meet other people uh, who are part of the stolen generation and to share my story and for them to share their story. You know, there are elements of generations still being stolen today, stolen and, and taken away today, and something I think we need to address, that although policies have changed, they're still not helping us. Certainly, I, I spent a lot of time in the Northern Territory, as we were talking about earlier on, and, and the rate of removal of children from home is unprecedented. It's skyrocketing. So it's it's a bit bizarre that after 20 years of the Bring Them Home report, we're still dealing with these issues and they're getting worse. We haven't yet found ways to make them better. But like you, there were many times when I teared up in the book and, and the first time you had sent in your essay to me to read through, I, I had a, a few moments of crying, I have to say. <laughs> Kai, um, in Colouring the Rainbow, Crystal Johnson uh, discusses the roles of sister girls or yimpanini in traditional culture in the Tiwi Islands. And Brenard Curtis also Thanks. discusses Kunga Kunga in Central Australian cultures. In your chapter, you reveal about being excluded as a girl from men's business and you discuss your negotiations with elders about participating as a brother boy in men's business. Can you tell us about some of the key sensitivities in those sorts of negotiations, how you would bring up a topic like that? Yeah. And begin those discussions? It's a really sensitive topic to bring up um, because actually, culturally, like for me, I can't, even like to this day, it's hard for me to talk about how I navigate that stuff, but I'll give you, a, I can't really go into it in depth, but um, for me, um, in my body, in my culture, um, I'm excluded from pretty much anything to do with men. I'm not really seen as a man culturally and um, it's hard, like they support me as a man, but socially, but culturally it's um, the no-go and I can't practice like the men's do because we have dance and we have song lines and um, stories and I'm not allowed to know most of them. Um, but yeah, like I guess it's a, it's a really hard one for me. So like we have men's and women's business in our culture and it's really strong and um, from Waka Waka people yeah there's been no brother boys that go through men's law and um, I don't think I was going to say yeah no but transgender like uh, sister girls have been widely accepted in my community and I think it's because we got the real patriarchal like traditional patriarchal um, culture where I'm from and um for any like woman to be in that is really, like a break of law 
and it's really serious. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, we understand sensitivities here. Um, and it's clearly quite different for the women, as both Brie and, and um, Crystal discuss. You know, Brie says that in uh, traditional Central Australian cultures, not only do the names exist, but the categories exist for trans women, or, or there are categories of people who are what in white culture today we call trans women, and they would go through women's business and they would marry men and they would live in um, a polygamous relationship and a polygamous extended family. Um, and Crystal talks about uh, being a carrier of both men's knowledge and women's knowledge. So, I can't carry yeah. yeah, okay, but right, yep. yeah. let's let's move on a bit sorry. too. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I threw that I threw you in off the deep end, uh, <laughs> and it was a fairly brutal question. Um, but I think I think it's very uh, with such topics that we're talking about tonight, there really aren't many easy questions. Um, this is also another difficult question. Can you can you tell us what it was like actually coming to the realization? That uh, that you were a girl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was a few accounts that I come to the realization. It says in the book that um, you know, the first time I ever explored my gender, I had an idea that I was transgender was when I was four years old, and I seen an um, intersex person on television, and I identified with that person, that you know their experience, and no, it wasn't mine, but. Um, what they went through, I identified with that and was like to my mum, mum, you did that to me, you gave me intervention surgery, like that. And, you know, mum was like, no, no, they just got different medical condition. I mean, no, they got, diff they got a medical condition, you don't have that. Played it down, say, I'm just a tomboy. But, um, yeah, no, that person had intervention surgery when they were baby to make them female after their surgery. But later in life, they identified with being a man so I thought, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a man and all that. Like, this is what happened to me. But it wasn't that. Um, and then the second time it came about that I was transgender, although when I was, like, came out, like, I came to my attention that I was transgender was when I was 16, uh, flicking through the internet and seeing another trans guy. Because I've seen, you know, sister girls have been visible. Brother boys were like a word in a pamphlet that they said they exist, but I've never seen one in a like, person or a uh, photo of a brother boy or a trans man, um, never. And then um, I've seen it on the internet and yeah, social media, because I was following a lot of like lesbian blogs or like queer kid blogs, and then um, a trans guy came up and they was like, whoa, that's like me. But um, so I went through their journal and they were like listing how they feel and stuff at the very start. You know, they had little months where it's like, this is the start, first month. I'm like, oh my God, this is so like me. So I kept looking through it and exploring my gender. And I didn't come out till after high school. Yeah. So, 18, 17? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think for all of us, it's a really challenging journey. And um, obviously, as, as Laniac has said, dealing with both race and with gender or sexuality is uh, just one of those extra factors that can often, all too often, tip us over into, into mental health challenges. Um, and I guess it's no secret that really our people often do face a higher level of, of mental illness. 
which is why I think things like safe schools are really so important. But let's move along and perhaps have a chat with Mark. Thanks, Kai. Um, and another, another sort of tough question, I suppose. <laughs> um, Mark, in 2009, the commentator Andrew Bolt wrote, quote, a gay white man with a law degree? Just the kind of Aboriginal who needs a special handout. Um, I mean, that was pretty brutal. So your rebuttal of Bolt uh, ended up in a federal court case that you won. Um, so what was it that Bolt was actually complaining about and what was the significance of his linking sexuality with race? Thank you. Uh, getting to the head of Andrew Bolt. Um, I want to acknowledge uh, traditional owners, Bunurong and Wurundjeri people, this... Um, of this land. I also want to pay particular attention to Todd Fernando, another Wiradjuri man, another gay man, and of course my partner Pete West, who's sitting in the audience. Um, yeah, 2009, what a fucked year that was. Um, <laughs> uh, you turn up and, you know, I was in Arizona doing my doctoral studies, and uh, my mum calls me out of the blue, going, and I quote, what the fuck did you do? Uh, and I'm going, you, know, you need to be a bit more specific, Mum. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and, of course, she was... People were contacting her, you know, Bolt put up photos of uh, 18 of us, 18 what would be considered fair-skinned. And up until recently, fair-skinned didn't exist as a category. It's just another invention of the white patriarchy that, you know, now we have to exist as something... I grew up only as Aboriginal, not fair-skinned, not as anything else. So we're getting this introduction of a new language of how we can now be strated as Aboriginal people, as queer people. Um, so now in the lexicon, I'm now deemed by the federal court because of fuckwit Andrew Bolt a, um, to be a fair-skinned Aboriginal, which is darker rather than lighter. Like, these are all legal definitions now inscribed. Um, it's, it's a whole level of crazy. Um, but what was... Eight, Andrew Bolt went after 18 of us um, who were fair-skinned and his main claim was that we were using our Aboriginal status or our Aboriginal identity to achieve economic and political gain. Um, it's not a lived experience, it's just for people like Andrew Bolt, Aboriginal identity is just a, a tool of which you can garner favour, you know, and if you're brought up black, Trust me, there's no favours that you can garner from being forever trapped in an identity. Because um, on the one hand, that's, these are just facts. I'm an Aboriginal person, I'm a Wiradjuri person, that's a fact. It's when white people put value on how that can be known. And, and that's what Bolt was really doing. And where he absolutely lost his shit was when I'm, I'm now... Not only am I an Aboriginal man, not dark enough for, hi, for him to actually go there's benevolence here and I can't understand what it means to be black in his view because I didn't need assistance or there is no, there's not enough white benevolence that can occur for fair-skinned Aborigines. And so, you know, I think I must have challenged him when he said, you know, because well, the quote that you it just gets a whole lot worse. I think at one point he referred to me as a gay white man um, with a law degree, masking, masquerading as a black woman with my snout in the trough. Um, and the reason he got there 
was because I was the recipient of Roberta Sykes Foundation um, scholarship. Now, Roberta Sykes, we all know who Bobby Sykes is, uh, a foundation run by black women, but it wasn't for black women. So not only did Bolt go after my sexual orientation, he then went after my gender identity, saying, you know, all of these things are just masks. He couldn't unmask who I was, and that really troubled him. Um, and during the court case, he was, you know, for, he'd been under cross-examination for a day and a half, and counsel who was assisting us... Um, uh, I think Bernstein. Uh, and what was interesting was all the counsel assisting us were Jews. The judge was a Jew. The other, And these things matter because they could talk to difference, what it means that to be different. Um, and Jewish people have a particular way of knowing the world and have been treated on the basis of their identity as Jewish, that these things can actually lead to a whole level of hurt. You know, we don't need to revisit Nazi Germany, uh, but America is just so... Um, so uh, where, where he was going with all of this was on the second day when Bernstein accused him of being a homophobe, he absolutely lost his shit to the point where the judge actually said, do you need to have a break, Mr Bolt? To which Mr Bolt responded to um, the judge, do you know what it's like to wake up one day in the newspapers and the stories are about you? And you go, wow, this is a whole level of Looney Tunes. Because everybody laughed in the court, kind of like that nervous giggle. <laughs> That's why we're here, idiot. Um, but anyway, uh, but he went after gender and he went after orientation and he went after Aboriginality. And I think he was, he was discomforted by all of them. And his, what was interesting was he wouldn't actually claim... He could actually handle the term of being a racist, but he couldn't handle being a homophobe. So you go, what is really going on in your apparently large, but I question large brain, um, that that's the kind of bile that you spew? Because we all have to live with that. Um, you know, we all have to live with the labels of others that their labelling becomes an activity. And when there are intersections going on and a lot of intersectionality, you know, we all have just talked about the difficulties of navigating... Um, gender and sexual orientation spaces as well as racialised spaces and in moment to moment we've got to actually make the calls on which one that we've got enough energy to fight at any particular because they're all under attack it's not just there's a benign you can just exist as that and we've all touched on you know I don't look a particular way therefore the questions that people will put to me are very different from the questions they will put to Todd um, and it is about always meeting somebody else's expectations of what you can be. I'm not Aboriginal enough, or in some places I'm too Aboriginal because, you know, I speak with a potty mouth. Somehow that ascribes to Aboriginality. So Bolt was really troubled by sexual orientation becoming into an encounter with Aboriginal identity. Because if for everybody else who was straight, um, there was no discussion about their orientation and so he demonstrated his discomfort at what happens when he can't deal with multiple identities in the one person he tries to strata them um, and then we had to deal with them thank you mark that's uh, another very confronting story and uh <laughs> or a set of experiences um 
And I think you can sort of gather from our panelists what they've been talking about already, just um, how brutal the whole field of these sorts of discussions can be uh, from the lived experience. And what a great deal of courage it takes to be dealing with these sorts of lived experiences at, on a daily basis. Um, I, in one of the reviews of Colouring the Rainbow, the reviewer described uh, the all of the, the book contributors as heroes, and I think that actually is a very accurate statement. Um, Hello everyone, you're listening to Queer in the Air, 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, on digital radio and podcasted. That was a discussion of Culling the Rainbow, um, so, that was a, so that was from a number of people that were that are contributors to a book of the, of the same name, Colouring the Rainbow. Um, so, yeah, some interesting stuff in that. I hope listeners got some interest, learnt some things from that discussion. So, next week is Subscriber Week, and we're looking for listeners to su- subscribe to 3CR um, because we're a radio station that relies on your support. So for not much money, you can subscribe to 3CR and help support us and keep us on air. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. So I thought I'd add in some stuff relevant to the last week. Yesterday we had a rally calling to block block a bill that seeks to ban um, asylum seekers arriving by boat from entering to Australia forever. So when we're talking about Trump temporarily banning people from a few countries, we have to look at the comparison with Australia and how Australia... It's leading the way in so many ways and creating this border architecture that is incredibly racist and incredibly, um, what's the word for it? Like, it's just Orwellian, really. Um, so, and on that rally, so I went yesterday, there's a few hundred people there. But this bill, we don't want it to pass. Like, if this passes, it's going to have consequences not just for this country, but around the world in terms of these these majority countries that are run by white Western, majority white Western nations that are like closing their borders up. And like countries like Australia and the US also set the colonial nations and they sit on stolen land and they're not. 
and they're erecting all these, like, massive borders and keeping out all these migrants, um, and refugees in particular. But on that, you can contact a number of key senators and keep the pressure up, because that really, the aim is to pressure a number of these key senators who are on the fence on the rally. So if you can get in touch with senators like the Nick Xenophon team, who are, like, are gonna, probably going to be deciding the bill. Um, and, yeah. So if you get, can get onto that, that would be great. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.